Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Chapter 46 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 46 Eight o'clock had struck, before I got into the air that was scented, not disagreeably, by the chips and shavings of the longshore boat-builders, and mast ore and block-makers. All that waterside region of the upper and lower pool below bridge was unknown ground to me, and when I struck down by the river, I found that the spot I wanted was not where I had supposed it to be, and was anything but easy to find. It was called Mill Pond Bank. Chink's Basin, and I had no other guide to Chink's Basin than the old green copper rope-walk. It matters not what stranded ships repairing in dry docks I lost myself among, what old hulls of ships in course of being knocked to pieces, what ooze and slime and other dregs of tide, what yards of shipbuilders and shipbreakers, what rusty anchors blindly biting into the ground, though for years off duty what mountainous country of accumulated casks and timber, how many rope-walks that were not the old green copper. After several times falling short of my destination, and as often overshooting it, I came unexpectedly round a corner upon Mill Pond Bank. It was a fresh kind of place, all circumstances considered, where the wind from the river had room to turn itself round, and there were two or three trees in it, and there was the stump of a ruined windmill, and there was the old green copper rope-walk, whose long and narrow vista I could trace in the moonlight along a series of wooden frames, set in the ground, that looked like superannuated haymaking rakes, which had grown old, and lost most of their teeth. Selecting from the few queer houses upon Millpond Bank, a house with a wooden front and three stories of bow-window, not bay-window, which is another thing, I looked at the plate upon the door, and read there, Mrs. Wimple. That being the name I wanted, I knocked, and an elderly woman of a pleasant and thriving appearance responded. She was immediately deposed, however, by Herbert, who silently led me into the parlour and shut the door. It was an odd sensation to see his very familiar face established quite at home in that very unfamiliar room and region, and I found myself looking at him much as I looked at the corner cupboard with the glass and china, the shells upon the chimney-piece, and the coloured engravings on the wall, representing the death of Captain Cook, a ship-launch, and His Majesty King George the Third, in a state coachman's wig, leather breeches, and top-boots, on the terrace at Windsor. "'All is well, Handel,' said Herbert, "'and he is quite satisfied, though eager to see you. My dear girl is with her father, and if you'll wait till she comes down, I'll make you known to her, and then we'll go upstairs. That's her father." I had become aware of an alarming growling overhead, and had probably expressed the fact in my countenance. "'I'm afraid he is a sad old rascal,' 
said Herbert, smiling. "'But I have never seen him. Don't you smell rum? He's always at it.' "'At rum?' said I. "'Yes,' returned Herbert. "'And you may suppose how mild it makes his gout. He persists, too, in keeping all the provisions upstairs in his room, and serving them out. He keeps them on shelves over his head, and will weigh them all. His room must be like a chandler's shop.' While he thus spoke, the growling noise became a prolonged roar, and then died away. "'What else can be the consequence?' said Herbert, in explanation. "'If you will cut the cheese. A man, with the gout in his right hand and everywhere else, can't expect to get through a double Gloucester without hurting himself.' He seemed to have hurt himself very much, for he gave another furious roar. "'To have Provis for an upper lodger is quite a godsend to Mrs. Wimple.' said Herbert, for, of course, people in general won't stand that noise. A curious place, Handel, isn't it?" It was a curious place, indeed, but remarkably well kept and clean. "'Mrs. Wimple,' said Herbert, when I told him so, "'is the best of housewives, and I really do not know what my Clara would do without her motherly help. For Clara has no mother of her own, Handel, and no relation in the world but old Gruffengrim. "'Surely that's not his name, Herbert?' "'No, no,' said Herbert. "'That's my name for him. His name is Mr. Barley. But what a blessing it is for the son of my father and mother to love a girl who has no relations, and who can never bother herself or anybody else about her family.' Herbert had told me on former occasions, and now reminded me, that he first knew Miss Clara Barley, when she was completing her education at an establishment at Hammersmith and that on her being recalled home to nurse her father, he and she had confided their affection to the motherly Mrs. Wimple, by whom it had been fostered and regulated with equal kindness and discretion ever since. It was understood that nothing of a tender nature could possibly be confided to old Barley, by reason of his being totally unequal to the consideration of any subject more psychological than gout, rum, and purser's stores. As we were thus conversing in a low tone, while old Barley's sustained growl vibrated in the beam that crossed the ceiling, the room-door opened, and a very pretty, slight, dark-eyed girl of twenty or so, came in with a basket in her hand, whom Herbert tenderly relieved at the basket, and presented blushing, as, "'Clara!' She really was a most charming girl, and might have passed for a captive fairy whom that truculent ogre, old Barley, had pressed into his service. "'Look here,' said Herbert, showing me the basket, with a compassionate and tender smile, after he had talked a little. "'Here's poor Clara's supper, served out every night. Here's her allowance of bread, and here's her slice of cheese, and here's her rum, which I drink. This is Mr. Barley's breakfast for to-morrow, served out to be cooked.' two mutton-chops, three potatoes, some split-peas, a little flour, two ounces of butter, a pinch of salt, and all this black pepper. It's stewed up together, and taken hot. And it's a nice thing for the gout, I should think." There was something so natural and winning in Clara's resigned way of looking at these stores in detail, as Herbert pointed them out, and something so confiding, loving, and innocent in her modest manner of yielding herself to Herbert's embracing arm, and something so gentle in her, so much needing protection on Mill Pond Bank, 
by Chinks's basin, and the old green copper rope walk. With old Barley growling in the beam, that I would not have undone the engagement between her and Herbert, for all the money in the pocket-book I had never opened. I was looking at her with pleasure and admiration, when suddenly the growl swelled into a roar again, and a frightful bumping noise was heard above, as if a giant with a wooden leg were trying to bore it through the ceiling to come to us. Upon this, Clara said to Herbert, "'Papa wants me, darling,' and ran away. "'There is an unconscionable old shark for you,' said Herbert. "'What do you suppose he wants now, Handel?' "'I don't know,' said I. "'Something to drink?' "'That's it,' cried Herbert, as if I had made a guess of extraordinary merit. "'He keeps his grog ready mixed in a little tub on the table. "'Wait a moment, and you'll hear Clara lift him up to take some. "'There he goes.' Another roar, with a prolonged shake at the end. "'Now,' said Herbert, as it was succeeded by silence, "'he's drinking.' "'Now,' said Herbert, as the growl resounded in the beam once more, "'he's down again on his back.' Clara returned soon afterwards and Herbert accompanied me upstairs to see our charge. As we passed Mr. Barley's door, he was heard hoarsely muttering within, in a strain that rose and fell like wind, the following refrain, in which I substitute good wishes for something quite the reverse. Oh, bless your eyes, here's old Bill Barley, here's old Bill Barley, bless your eyes, here's old Bill Barley on the flat of his back by the Lord, lying on the flat of his back like a drifting old dead flounder, here's your old Bill Barley, bless your eyes, ahoy, bless you. In this strain of consolation, Herbert informed me the invisible Barley would commune with himself by the day and night together often while it was light, having at the same time one eye at a telescope which was fitted on his bed for the convenience of sweeping the river. In his two cabin rooms at the top of the house, which were fresh and airy, and in which Mr. Barley was less audible than below, I found Provis comfortably settled. He expressed no alarm, and seemed to feel none that was worth mentioning, but it struck me that he was softened, indefinably for I could not have said how, and could never afterwards recall how when I tried, but certainly. The opportunity that the day's rest had given me for reflection had resulted in my fully determining to say nothing to him respecting compassion. For anything I knew, his animosity towards the man might otherwise lead to his seeking him out and rushing on his own destruction. Therefore, when Herbert and I sat down with him by his fire, I asked him first of all whether he relied on Wemmick's judgment and sources of information. "'Aye, aye, dear boy,' he answered with a grave nod. "'Jagger's nose!' "'Then I have talked with Wemmick,' said I, "'and have come to tell you what caution he gave me, and what advice.' This I did accurately, with the reservation just mentioned, and I told him how Wemmick had heard in Newgate Prison, whether from officers or prisoners I could not say, that he was under some suspicion, and that my chambers had been watched. How Wemmick had recommended his keeping close for a time, and my keeping away from him, and what Wemmick had said about getting him abroad. I added that, of course, 
when the time came, I should go with him, or should follow close upon him, as might be safest in Wemmick's judgment. What was to follow that, I did not touch upon. Neither, indeed, was I at all clear or comfortable about it in my own mind, now that I saw him in that softer condition, and in declared peril for my sake. As to altering my way of living, by enlarging my expenses, I put it to him, whether in our present unsettled and difficult circumstances, it would not be simply ridiculous, if it were no worse. He could not deny this, and indeed was very reasonable throughout. His coming back was a venture, he said, and he had always known it to be a venture. He would do nothing to make it a desperate venture, and he had very little fear of his safety with such good help. Herbert, who had been looking at the fire and pondering, here said that something had come into his thoughts arising out of Wemmick's suggestion, which it might be worth while to pursue. "'We are both good watermen, Handel, and could take him down the river ourselves when the right time comes. No boat would then be hired for the purpose, and no boatman. That would save at least a chance of suspicion, and any chance is worth saving. Never mind the season. Don't you think it might be a good thing, if you began at once to keep a boat at the temple stairs, and were in the habit of rowing up and down the river? You fall into that habit, and then who notices or minds? Do it twenty or fifty times, and there is nothing special in your doing it the twenty-first or fifty-first. I liked this scheme, and Provis was quite elated by it. We agreed that it should be carried into execution, and that Provis should never recognise us if we came below bridge, and rode past Mill Pond Bank. But we further agreed that he should pull down the blind in that part of his window which gave upon the east whenever he saw us, and all was right. Our conference being now ended, and everything arranged, I rose to go, remarking to Herbert that he and I had better not go home together, and that I would take half an hour's start of him. "'I don't like to leave you here,' I said to Provis, "'though I cannot doubt your being safer here than near me. "'Good-bye.' "'Dear boy,' he answered, clasping my hands, "'I don't know when we may meet again.' and I don't like good-bye. Say good-night. Good-night. Herbert will go regularly between us, and when the time comes you may be certain I shall be ready. Good-night. Good-night. We thought it best that he should stay in his own rooms, and we left him on the landing outside his door, holding a light over the stair-rail to light us downstairs. Looking back at him, I thought of the first night of his return, when our positions were reversed, and when I little supposed my heart could ever be as heavy and anxious at parting from him as it was now. Old Barley was growling and swearing when we repassed his door, with no appearance of having ceased or of meaning to cease. When we got to the foot of the stairs, I asked Herbert whether he had preserved the name of Provis. He replied, certainly not and that the lodger was Mr. Campbell. He also explained that the utmost known of Mr. Campbell there was that he, Herbert, had Mr. Campbell consigned to him, and felt a strong personal interest in his being well cared for, and living a secluded life. So, when we went into the parlour, where Mrs. Wimple and Clara were seated at work, I said nothing of my own interest in Mr. Campbell, 
but kept it to myself. When I had taken leave of the pretty, gentle, dark-eyed girl, and of the motherly woman, who had not outlived her honest sympathy with the little affair of true love, I felt as if the old green copper rope-walk had grown quite a different place. Old Barley might be as old as the hills, and might swear like a whole field of troopers, but there were redeeming youth and trust and hope enough in Chink's Basin to fill it to overflowing. And then I thought of Estella, and of our parting, and went home very sadly. All things were as quiet in the temple as ever I had seen them. The windows of the rooms on that side, lately occupied by Provis, were dark and still, and there was no lounger in Garden Court. I walked past the fountain twice or thrice, before I descended the steps that were between me and my rooms, but I was quite alone. Herbert coming to my bedside when he came in, for I went straight to bed, dispirited and fatigued, made the same report. Opening one of the windows after that, he looked out into the moonlight, and told me that the pavement was as solemnly empty as the pavement of any cathedral at that same hour. Next day I set myself to get the boat. It was soon done, and the boat was brought round to the temple stairs, and lay where I could reach her within a minute or two. Then I began to go out as for training and practice, sometimes alone, sometimes with Herbert. I was often out in cold rain and sleet, but nobody took much note of me after I had been out a few times. At first I kept above Blackfriars Bridge, but as the hours of the tide changed, I took towards London Bridge. It was old London Bridge in those days, and at certain states of the tide there was a race and fall of water there which gave it a bad reputation. But I knew well enough how to shoot the bridge after seeing it done, and so began to row about among the shipping in the pool, and down to Erith. The first time I passed Mill Pond Bank, Herbert and I were pulling a pair of oars, and, both in going and returning, we saw the blind towards the east come down. Herbert was rarely there less frequently than three times in a week, and he never brought me a single word of intelligence that was at all alarming. Still, I knew that there was cause for alarm, and I could not get rid of the notion of being watched. Once received, it is a haunting idea. How many undesigning persons I suspected of watching me, it would be hard to calculate. In short, I was always full of fears for the rash man who was in hiding. Herbert had sometimes said to me that he found it pleasant to stand at one of our windows after dark, when the tide was running down, and to think that it was flowing, with everything it bore, towards Clara. But I thought with dread that it was flowing towards Magwitch, and that any black mark on its surface might be his pursuers, going swiftly, silently, and surely, to take him. End of chapter 46「of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 47. Some weeks passed without bringing any change. We waited for Wemmick, and he made no sign. If I had never known him out of Little Britain, 
and had never enjoyed the privilege of being on a familiar footing at the castle, I might have doubted him. Not so for a moment, knowing him as I did. My worldly affairs began to wear a gloomy appearance, and I was pressed for money by more than one creditor. Even I myself began to know the want of money, I mean of ready money in my own pocket, and to relieve it by converting some easily spared articles of jewellery into cash. But I had quite determined that it would be a heartless fraud to take more money from my patron in the existing state of my uncertain thoughts and plans. Therefore, I had sent him the unopened pocket-book by Herbert, to hold in his own keeping, and I felt a kind of satisfaction, whether it was a false kind or a true, I hardly know, in not having profited by his generosity since his revelation of himself. As the time wore on, an impression settled heavily upon me that Estella was married. Fearful of having it confirmed, though it was all but a conviction, I avoided the newspapers and begged Herbert, to whom I had confided the circumstances of our last interview, never to speak of her to me. Why I hoarded up this last wretched little rag of the robe of hope that was rent, and given to the winds, how do I know? Why did you, who read this, commit that not dissimilar inconsistency of her own, last year, last month, last week? It was an unhappy life that I lived and its one dominant anxiety, towering over all its other anxieties, like a high mountain above a range of mountains, never disappeared from my view. Still, no new cause for fear arose. Let me start from my bed as I would, with the terror fresh upon me that he was discovered. Let me sit listening as I would, with dread, for Herbert's returning step at night, lest it should be fleeter than ordinary, and winged with evil news. For all that, and much more to like purpose, the round of things went on. Condemned to inaction, and a state of constant restlessness and suspense, I rode about in my boat and waited, 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 as I best could. There were states of the tide when, having been down the river, I could not get back through the eddy-chafed arches and starlings of old London Bridge. Then I left my boat at a wharf near the custom-house, to be brought up afterwards to the temple stairs. I was not averse to doing this, as it served to make me and my boat a commoner incident among the waterside people there. From this slight occasion sprang two meetings that I have now to tell of. One afternoon, late in the month of February, I came ashore at the wharf at dusk. I had pulled down as far as Greenwich with the ebb-tide, and had turned with the tide. It had been a fine, bright day, but had become foggy as the sun dropped, and I had had to feel my way back among the shipping pretty carefully. Both in going and returning, I had seen the signal in his window. All well. As it was a raw evening and I was cold, I thought I would comfort myself with dinner at once. And as I had hours of dejection and solitude before me, if I went home to the temple, I thought I would afterwards go to the play. The theatre where Mr. Wopsle had achieved his questionable triumph was in that waterside neighbourhood. It is nowhere now. And to that theatre I resolved to go. I was aware that Mr. Wopsle had not succeeded in reviving the drama, but, on the contrary, had rather partaken of its decline. He had been ominously heard of, through the playbills, as a faithful black, 
in connection with a little girl of noble birth and a monkey. And Herbert had seen him as a predatory tartar of comic propensities, with a face like a red brick and an outrageous hat all over bells. I dined at what Herbert and I used to call a geographical chop-house, where there were maps of the world in porter-pot rims on every half-yard of the tablecloths, and charts of gravy on every one of the knives. To this day there is scarcely a single chop-house within the Lord Mayor's dominions which is not geographical, and wore out the time in dozing over crumbs, staring at gas, and baking in a hot blast of dinners. By and by I roused myself and went to the play. There I found a virtuous boatswain in His Majesty's service, a most excellent man, though I could have wished his trousers not quite so tight in some places, and not quite so loose in others, who knocked all the little men's hats over their eyes, though he was very generous and brave, and who wouldn't hear of anybody's paying taxes, though he was very patriotic. He had a bag of money in his pocket, like a pudding in the cloth, and on that property married a young person in bed-furniture, with great rejoicings, the whole population of Portsmouth, nine in number at the last census, turning out on the beach to rub their own hands, and shake everybody else's, and sing, Phil, Phil. A certain dark-complexioned swab, however, who wouldn't fill, or do anything else that was proposed to him, and whose heart was openly stated by the boatswain to be as black as his figurehead, proposed to two other swabs to get all mankind into difficulties, which was so effectually done, the swab family having considerable political influence, that it took half the evening to set things right, and then it was only brought about through an honest little grocer, with a white hat, black gaiters, and red nose, getting into a clock, with a gridiron, and listening, and coming out, and knocking everybody down from behind with the gridiron, whom he couldn't confute with what he had overheard. This led to Mr. Wopsles, who had never been heard of before, coming in with the star and garter on, as a plenipotentiary of great power, direct from the Admiralty, to say that the swabs were all to go to prison on the spot, and that he had brought the boatswain down the Union Jack, as a slight acknowledgment of his public services. The boatswain, unmanned for the first time, respectfully dried his eyes on the jack, and then, cheering up, and addressing Mr. Wopsle as your honour, solicited permission to take him by the fin. Mr. Wopsle, conceding his fin, with a gracious dignity, was immediately shoved into a dusty corner, while everybody danced a hornpipe, and from that corner, surveying the public with a discontented eye, became aware of me. The second piece was the last new grand comic Christmas pantomime, in the first scene of which it pained me to suspect that I detected Mr. Wopsle, with red worsted legs, under a highly magnified phosphoric countenance, and a shock of red curtain fringe for his hair, engaged in the manufacture of thunderbolts in a mine, and displaying great cowardice when his gigantic master came home, very hoarse, to dinner. But he presently presented himself under worthier circumstances, for, the genius of youthful love being in want of assistance, on account of the parental brutality of an ignorant farmer, who opposed the choice of his daughter's heart, by purposely falling upon the object, in a flour-sack, out of the first-floor window, summoned a sententious enchanter, and he, coming up from the Antipodes, rather unsteadily, after an apparently violent journey, proved to be Mr. Wopsle, in a high-crowned hat, with a necromantic work in one volume under his arm. The business of this enchanter on earth, 
being principally to be talked at, sung at, butted at, danced at, and flashed at with fires of various colours, he had a good deal of time on his hands. And I observed with great surprise that he devoted it to staring in my direction, as if he were lost in amazement. There was something so remarkable in the increasing glare of Mr. Wopsle's eye, and he seemed to be turning so many things over in his mind, and to grow so confused, that I could not make it out. I sat thinking of it, long after he had ascended to the clouds in a large watch-case, and still I could not make it out. I was still thinking of it, when I came out of the theatre an hour afterwards, and found him waiting for me near the door. "'How do you do?' said I, shaking hands with him as we turned down the street together. "'I saw that you saw me.' "'Saw you, Mr. Pip?' he returned. "'Yes, of course I saw you. But who else was there?' "'Who else?' "'It is the strangest thing,' said Mr. Wopsle, drifting into his lost look again, "'and yet I could swear to him.' Becoming alarmed, I entreated Mr. Wopsle to explain his meaning. "'Whether I should have noticed him at first, but for your being there,' said Mr. Wopsle, going on in the same lost way, "'I can't be positive, yet I think I should.' Involuntarily, I looked round me as I was accustomed to look round me when I went home, for these mysterious words gave me a chill. "'Oh, he can't be in sight,' said Mr. Wopsle. "'He went out before I went off. I saw him go.' Having the reason that I had for being suspicious, I even suspected this poor actor. I mistrusted a design to entrap me into some admission. Therefore I glanced at him as we walked on together, but said nothing. "'I had a ridiculous fancy that he must be with you, Mr. Pip, till I saw that you were quite unconscious of him sitting behind you there like a ghost.' My former chill crept over me again, but I was resolved not to speak yet, for it was quite consistent with his words that he might be set on to induce me to connect these references with Provis. Of course, I was perfectly sure and safe that Provis had not been there. "'I dare say you wonder at me, Mr. Pip. Indeed, I see you do. But it is so very strange. You'll hardly believe what I am going to tell you. I could hardly believe it myself, if you told me.' "'Indeed?' said I. "'No, indeed, Mr. Pip. You remember in old times a certain Christmas day, when you were quite a child, and I dined at Gargery's, and some soldiers came to the door to get a pair of handcuffs mended. I remember it very well. And you remember that there was a chase after two convicts, and that we joined in it, and that Gargery took you on his back, and that I took the lead, and you kept up with me as well as you could. I remember it all very well. Better than he thought except the last clause. And you remember that we came up with the two in a ditch, and that there was a scuffle between them, and that one of them had been severely handled, and much mauled about the face by the other? I see it all before me. And that the soldiers lighted torches, and put the two in the centre, and that we went on to see the last of them, over the black marshes, with the torchlight shining on their faces, I am particular about that, with the torchlight shining on their faces, 
when there was an outer ring of dark night all about us?' "'Yes,' said I. "'I remember all that.' "'Then, Mr. Pip, one of those two prisoners sat behind you to-night. I saw him over your shoulder.' "'Steady,' I thought. I asked him then. "'Which of the two do you suppose you saw?' "'The one who had been mauled,' he answered readily. "'And I'll swear I saw him. The more I think of him, the more certain I am of him.' "'This is very curious,' said I, with the best assumption I could put on of its being nothing more to me. "'Very curious, indeed.' "'I cannot exaggerate the enhanced disquiet into which this conversation threw me or the special and peculiar terror I felt at Compeyson's having been behind me, like a ghost. For, if he had ever been out of my thoughts for a few moments together, since the hiding had begun, it was in those very moments when he was closest to me, and to think that I should be so unconscious and off my guard, after all my care, was as if I had shut an avenue of a hundred doors to keep him out, and then had found him at my elbow. I could not doubt either that he was there, because I was there, and that, however slight an appearance of danger there might be about us, danger was always near and active. I put such questions to Mr. Wopsle as, when did the man come in? He could not tell me that. He saw me, and over my shoulder he saw the man. It was not until he had seen him for some time that he began to identify him but he had from the first vaguely associated him with me, and known him as somehow belonging to me in the old village time. How was he dressed? Prosperously, but not noticeably otherwise, he thought in black. Was his face at all disfigured? No, he believed not. I believed not, too, for although in my brooding state I had taken no especial notice of the people behind me, I thought it likely that a face at all disfigured would have attracted my attention. When Mr. Wopsle had imparted to me all that he could recall, or I extract, and when I had treated him to a little appropriate refreshment after the fatigues of the evening, we parted. It was between twelve and one o'clock when I reached the temple, and the gates were shut. No one was near me when I went in, and went home. Herbert had come in and we held a very serious council by the fire. But there was nothing to be done, saving to communicate to Wemmick what I had that night found out, and to remind him that we waited for his hint. As I thought that I might compromise him if I went too often to the castle, I made this communication by letter. I wrote it before I went to bed, and went out and posted it, and again no one was near me. Herbert and I agreed that we could do nothing else but be very cautious. And we were very cautious indeed, more cautious than before, if that were possible. And I, for my part, never went near Chinks's basin, except when I rode by, and then I only looked at Mill Pond Bank, as I looked at anything else. End of chapter 47《Of Great Expectations》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 48 
The second of the two meetings referred to in the last chapter occurred about a week after the first. I had again left my boat at the wharf below bridge. The time was an hour earlier in the afternoon, and, undecided where to dine, I had strolled up into Cheapside, and was strolling along it, surely the most unsettled person in all the busy concourse, when a large hand was laid upon my shoulder by someone overtaking me. It was Mr. Jaggers's hand, and it passed it through my arm. "'As we are going in the same direction, Pip, we may walk together. Where are you bound for?' "'For the temple, I think,' said I. "'Don't you know?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Well,' I returned, glad for once to get the better of him in cross-examination. "'I do not know, for I have not made up my mind.' "'You are going to dine?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'You don't mind admitting that, I suppose?' "'No,' I returned. "'I don't mind admitting that.' "'And are not engaged?' "'I don't mind admitting also that I am not engaged.' "'Then,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'come and dine with me.' I was going to excuse myself, when he added, "'Wemmick's coming.' So I changed my excuse into an acceptance, the few words I had uttered serving for the beginning of either. And we went along Cheapside, and slanted off to Little Britain, while the lights were springing up brilliantly in the shop-windows, and the street-lamplighters, scarcely finding ground enough to plant their ladders on, in the midst of the afternoon's bustle, were skipping up and down, and running in and out, opening more red eyes in the gathering fog than my rush-light tower at the Hummums had opened white eyes in the ghostly wall. At the office in Little Britain there was the usual letter-writing, hand-washing, candle-snuffing, and safe-locking that closed the business of the day. As I stood idle by Mr. Jaggers's fire, its rising and falling flame made the two casts on the shelf look as if they were playing a diabolical game at bo-peep with me, while a pair of coarse fat office candles, that dimly lighted Mr. Jaggers as he wrote in a corner, were decorated with dirty winding-sheets, as if in remembrance of a host of hanged clients. We went to Gerard Street, all three together, in a hackney-coach and as soon as we got there, dinner was served. Although I should not have thought of making, in that place, the most distant reference by so much as a look to Wemmick's Walworth sentiments, yet I should have had no objection to catching his eye now and then, in a friendly way. But it was not to be done. He turned his eyes on Mr. Jaggers, whenever he raised them from the table, and was as dry and distant to me, as if there were twin Wemmicks, and this was the wrong one. "'Did you send that note of Miss Havisham's to Mr. Pip, Wemmick?' Mr. Jaggers asked, soon after we began dinner. "'No, sir,' returned Wemmick. "'It was going by post when you brought Mr. Pip into the office. Here it is.' He handed it to his principal, instead of to me. "'It's a note of two lines, Pip,' said Mr. Jaggers, handing it on. "'Sent up to me by Miss Havisham, on account of her not being sure of your address.' She tells me that she wants to see you on a little matter of business you mentioned to her. You'll go down?" "'Yes,' said I, casting my eyes over the note, which was exactly in those terms. "'When do you think of going down?' "'I have an impending engagement,' said I, glancing at Wemmick, who was putting fish into the post-office. "'That renders me rather uncertain of my time. At once, I think.' 
"'If Mr. Pip has the intention of going at once,' said Wemmick to Mr. Jaggers, "'he needn't write an answer, you know.' Receiving this as an intimation that it was best not to delay, I settled that I would go to-morrow, and said so. Wemmick drank a glass of wine, and looked with a grimly satisfied air at Mr. Jaggers, but not at me. "'So, Pip, our friend the spider,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'has played his cards. He has won the pool.' It was as much as I could do to assent. "'Ha! He is a promising fellow in his way, but he may not have it all his own way. The stronger will win in the end, but the stronger has to be found out first. If he should turn to and beat her—'Surely!' I interrupted with a burning face and heart. "'You do not seriously think that he is scoundrel enough for that, Mr. Jaggers?' "'I didn't say so, Pip. I am putting a case. If he should turn to and beat her, he may possibly get the strength on his side. If it should be a question of intellect, he certainly will not. It would be chance work to give an opinion how a fellow of that sort will turn out in such circumstances, because it's a toss-up between two results. May I ask what they are? A fellow like our friend the spider, answered Mr. Jaggers, either beats or cringes. He may cringe and growl, or cringe and not growl, but he either beats or cringes. Ask Wemmick his opinion. Either beats or cringes, said Wemmick, not at all addressing himself to me. So, here's to Mrs. Bentley Drummle, said Mr. Jaggers, taking a decanter of choicer wine from his dumb-waiter, and filling for each of us and for himself. And may the question of supremacy be settled to the lady's satisfaction. To the satisfaction of the lady and the gentleman it never will be. "'Now, Molly, 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 how slow you are to-day!' She was at his elbow when he addressed her, putting a dish upon the table. As she withdrew her hands from it, she fell back a step or two, nervously muttering some excuse. And a certain action of her fingers as she spoke arrested my attention. "'What's the matter?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Nothing. Only the subject we were speaking of.' said I, was rather painful to me. The action of her fingers was like the action of knitting. She stood looking at her master, not understanding whether she was free to go, or whether he had more to say to her, and would call her back if she did go. Her look was very intent. Surely I had seen exactly such eyes and such hands on a memorable occasion very lately. He dismissed her, and she glided out of the room. But she remained before me, as plainly as if she were still there. I looked at those hands. I looked at those eyes. I looked at that flowing hair. And I compared them with other hands, other eyes, other hair, that I knew of. And with what those might be, after twenty years of a brutal husband and a stormy life. I looked again at those hands and eyes of the housekeeper and thought of the inexplicable feeling that had come over me when I last walked, not alone, in the ruined garden, and through the deserted brewery. I thought how the same feeling had come back when I saw a face looking at me, and a hand waving to me from a stage-coach window. 
and how it had come back again, and had flashed about me like lightning, when I had passed in a carriage, not alone, through a sudden glare of light in a dark street. I thought how one link of association had helped that identification in the theatre, and how such a link, wanting before, had been riveted for me now, when I had passed by a chance swift from Estella's name to the fingers for their knitting action, and the attentive eyes, and I felt absolutely certain that this woman was Estella's mother. Mr. Jaggers had seen me with Estella, and was not likely to have missed the sentiments I had been at no pains to conceal. He nodded when I said the subject was painful to me, clapped me on the back, put round the wine again, and went on with his dinner. Only twice more did the housekeeper reappear, and then her stay in the room was very short, and Mr. Jaggers was sharp with her. But her hands were Estella's hands, and her eyes were Estella's eyes, and if she had reappeared a hundred times, I could have been neither more sure nor less sure that my conviction was the truth. It was a dull evening, for Wemmick drew his wine when it came round, quite as a matter of business, just as he might have drawn his salary when that came round, and with his eyes on his chief, sat in a state of perpetual readiness for cross-examination. As to the quantity of wine, his post-office was as indifferent and ready as any other post-office for its quantity of letters. From my point of view, he was the wrong twin all the time, and only externally like the Wemmick of Walworth. We took our leave early, and left together. Even when we were groping among Mr. Jaggers's stock of boots for our hats, I felt that the right twin was on his way back, and we had not gone half a dozen yards down Gerard Street in the Walworth direction before I found that I was walking arm in arm with the right twin, and that the wrong twin had evaporated into the evening air. "'Well,' said Wemmick, "'that's over. He's a wonderful man, without his living lightness, but I feel that I have to screw myself up when I dine with him, and I dine more comfortably unscrewed. I felt that this was a good statement of the case, and told him so. "'Wouldn't say it to anybody but yourself,' he answered. "'I know that what you said between you and me goes no further.' I asked him if he had ever seen Miss Havisham's adopted daughter, Mrs. Bentley Drummel. He said no. To avoid being too abrupt, I then spoke of the aged and of Miss Skiffins. He looked rather sly when I mentioned Miss Skiffins, and stopped in the street to blow his nose, with a roll of the head and a flourish not quite free from latent boastfulness. "'Wemmick,' said I, "'do you remember telling me, before I first went to Mr. Jaggers's private house, to notice that housekeeper?' "'Did I?' he replied. "'Ah, oh, I dare say I did. Deuce take me,' he added suddenly. "'I know I did. I find I'm not quite unscrewed yet.' "'A wild beast tamed, you called her.' "'And what do you call her?' "'The same.' "'How did Mr. Jaggers tame her, Wemmick?' "'That's his secret. She's been with him many a long year.' "'I wish you would tell me her story. I feel a particular interest in being acquainted with it. You know that what is said between you and me goes no further.' "'Well,' Wemmick replied, "'I don't know her story. That is, I don't know all of it. But what I do know, I'll tell you.' We are in our private and personal capacities, of course. 
of course. A score or so of years ago, that woman was tried at the Old Bailey for murder, and was acquitted. She was a very handsome young woman, and I believe had some gypsy blood in her. Anyhow, it was hot enough when it was up, as you may suppose. But she was acquitted. Mr. Jaggers was for her, pursued Wemmick, with a look full of meaning, and worked the case in a way quite astonishing. It was a desperate case, and it was comparatively early days with him then, and he worked it to general admiration. In fact, it may almost be said to have made him. He worked it himself at the police office, day after day, for many days, contending against even a committal. And at the trial, where he couldn't work it himself, sat under counsel, and, every one knew, put in all the salt and the pepper. The murdered person was a woman, a woman a good ten years older, very much larger, and very much stronger. It was a case of jealousy. They both led tramping lives. And this woman, in Gerard Street here, had been married very young, over the broomstick, as we say, to a tramping man, and was a perfect fury in point of jealousy. The murdered woman, more a match for the man, certainly, in point of years, was found dead in a barn near Hounslow Heath. There had been a violent struggle, perhaps a fight. She was bruised and scratched and torn, and had been held by the throat at last and choked. Now, there was no reasonable evidence to implicate any person but this woman, and, on the improbabilities of her having been able to do it, Mr. Jaggers principally rested his case. "'You may be sure,' said Wemmick, touching me on the sleeve, "'that he never dwelt upon the strength of her hands then, though he sometimes does now.' I had told Wemmick of his showing us her wrists that day of the dinner-party. "'Well, sir,' Wemmick went on, "'it happened, happened, don't you see, that this woman was so very artfully dressed from the time of her apprehension that she looked much slighter than she really was. In particular, her sleeves are always remembered to have been so skilfully contrived that her arms had quite a delicate look. She had only a bruise or two about her, nothing for a tramp, but the backs of her hands were lacerated, and the question was, was it with finger-nails? Now, Mr. Jaggers showed that she had struggled through a great lot of brambles, which were not as high as her face but which she could not have got through, and kept her hands out of. And bits of those brambles were actually found in her skin, and put in evidence, as well as the fact that the brambles in question were found on examination to have been broken through, and to have little shreds of her dress and little spots of blood upon them here and there. But the boldest point he made was this. It was attempted to be set up in proof of her jealousy that she was under strong suspicion of having, at about the time of the murder, frantically destroyed her child by this man, some three years old, to revenge herself upon him. Mr. Jaggers worked that in this way. We say these are not marks of finger-nails, but marks of brambles, and we show you the brambles. You say they are marks of finger-nails, and you set up the hypothesis that she destroyed her child. You must accept all consequences of that hypothesis, for anything we know, 
she may have destroyed her child, and the child in clinging to her may have scratched her hands. What then? You are not trying her for the murder of her child. Why don't you? As to this case, if you will have scratches, we say that, for anything we know, you may have accounted for them, assuming for the sake of argument that you have not invented them. To sum up, sir, said Wemmick, Mr. Jaggers was altogether too many for the jury, and they gave in. Has she been in his service ever since? Yes, but not only that, said Wemmick. She went into his service immediately after her acquittal, tamed as she is now. She has since been taught one thing and another in the way of her duties, but she was tamed from the beginning. Do you remember the sex of the child? Said to have been a girl. You have nothing more to say to me to-night? Nothing. I got your letter and destroyed it. Nothing. We exchanged a cordial good-night, and I went home with new matter for my thoughts, though with no relief from the old. End of chapter 48《Chapter Forty Nine of Great Expectations》This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Forty Nine. Putting Miss Havisham's note in my pocket, that it might serve as my credentials for so soon reappearing at Sartis House, in case her waywardness should lead her to express any surprise at seeing me. I went down again by the coach next day. But I alighted at the halfway house, and breakfasted there, and walked the rest of the distance, for I sought to get into the town quietly by the unfrequented ways, and to leave it in the same manner. The best light of the day was gone when I passed along the quiet, echoing courts behind the high street, the nooks of ruin where the old monks had once had their refectories and gardens and where the strong walls were now pressed into the surface of humble sheds and stables, were almost as silent as the old monks in their graves. The cathedral chimes had at once a sadder and a more remote sound to me, as I hurried on avoiding observation, than they had ever had before. So the swell of the old organ was borne to my ears like funeral music, and the rooks, as they hovered about the grey tower, and swung in the bare high trees of the priory garden, seemed to call to me that the place was changed, and that Estella was gone out of it for ever. An elderly woman, whom I had seen before, as one of the servants, who lived in the supplementary house across the back courtyard, opened the gate. The lighted candle stood in the dark passage within, as of old, and I took it up and ascended the staircase alone. Miss Havisham was not in her own room, but was in the larger room across the landing. Looking in at the door, after knocking in vain, I saw her sitting on the hearth, in a ragged chair, close before, and lost in the contemplation of the ashy fire. Doing as I had often done, I went in, and stood, touching the old chimney-piece, where she could see me when she raised her eyes. There was an air of utter loneliness upon her, that would have moved me to pity, though she had wilfully done me a deeper injury than I could charge her with. As I stood compassionating her, 
and thinking how, in the progress of time, I, too, had come to be a part of the wrecked fortunes of that house. Her eyes rested on me. She stared, and said in a low voice, "'Is it real?' "'It is I, Pip. Mr. Jaggers gave me your note yesterday, and I have lost no time.' "'Thank you. Thank you.' As I brought another of the ragged chairs to the hearth, and sat down, I remarked a new expression on her face, as if she were afraid of me. "'I want,' she said, to pursue that subject you mentioned to me when you were last here, and to show you that I am not all stone. But perhaps you can never believe now that there is anything human in my heart." When I said some reassuring words, she stretched out her tremulous right hand, as though she was going to touch me. But she recalled it again before I understood the action, or knew how to receive it. You said, speaking for your friend, that you could tell me how to do something useful and good, something that you would like done, is it not? Something that I would like done very much. What is it? I began explaining to her that secret history of the partnership. I had not got far into it, when I judged from her looks that she was thinking in a discursive way of me, rather than of what I said. It seemed to be so, for, when I stopped speaking, many moments passed before she showed that she was conscious of the fact. "'Do you break off?' she asked then, with her former air of being afraid of me. "'Because you hate me too much to bear to speak to me?' "'No, no,' I answered. "'How can you think so, Miss Havisham? I stopped because I thought you were not following what I said.' "'Perhaps.' I was not," she answered, putting a hand to her head. "'Begin again, and let me look at something else. Stay. Now tell me.' She set her hand upon her stick, in the resolute way that sometimes was habitual to her, and looked at the fire with a strong expression of forcing herself to attend. I went on with my explanation, and told her how I had hoped to complete the transaction out of my means but how in this I was disappointed. That part of the subject, I reminded her, involved matters which could form no part of my explanation, for they were the weighty secrets of another. "'So,' said she, assenting with her head, but not looking at me, "'and how much money is wanting to complete the purchase?' I was rather afraid of stating it, for it sounded a large sum. Nine hundred pounds. If I give you the money for this purpose, will you keep my secret as you have kept your own? Quite as faithfully. And your mind will be more at rest? Much more at rest. Are you very unhappy now? She asked me this question, still without looking at me, but in an unwonted tone of sympathy. I could not reply at the moment for my voice failed me. She put her left arm across the head of her stick, and softly laid her forehead on it. "'I am far from happy, Miss Havisham, but I have other causes of disquiet than any you know of. They are the secrets I have mentioned.' After a little while, she raised her head and looked at the fire again. 
"'It is noble in you to tell me that you have other causes of unhappiness. Is it true?' "'Too true. Can I only serve you, Pip, by serving your friend? Regarding that as done, is there nothing I can do for you yourself?' "'Nothing. I thank you for the question.' I thank you even more for the tone of the question, but there is nothing." She presently rose from her seat, and looked about the blighted room for the means of writing. There were none there, and she took from her pocket a yellow set of ivory tablets, mounted in tarnished gold, and wrote upon them with a pencil in a case of tarnished gold that hung from her neck. "'You are still on friendly terms with Mr. Jaggers?' Quite. I dined with him yesterday. This is an authority to him, to pay you that money, to lay out at your irresponsible discretion for your friend. I keep no money here, but if you would rather Mr. Jaggers knew nothing of the matter, I will send it to you. Thank you, Miss Havisham. I have not the least objection to receiving it from him. She read me what she had written, and it was direct and clear and evidently intended to absolve me from any suspicion of profiting by the receipt of the money. I took the tablets from her hand, and it trembled again, and it trembled more as she took off the chain to which the pencil was attached, and put it in mine. All this she did, without looking at me. "'My name is on the first leaf. If you can ever write under my name, I forgive her, though ever so long after my broken heart is dust. Pray do it." "'Oh, Miss Havisham,' said I, "'I can do it now. There have been sore mistakes, and my life has been a blind and thankless one, and I want forgiveness and direction far too much to be bitter with you.' She turned her face to me for the first time since she had averted it and, to my amazement, I may even add to my terror, dropped on her knees at my feet, with her folded hands raised to me, in the manner in which, when her poor heart was young and fresh and whole, they must often have been raised to heaven from her mother's side. To see her, with her white hair and her worn face, kneeling at my feet, gave me a shock through all my frame. I entreated her to rise, and got my arms about her to help her up. But she only pressed that hand of mine which was nearest to her grasp, and hung her head over it, and wept. I had never seen her shed a tear before, and, in the hope that the relief might do her good, I bent over her without speaking. She was not kneeling now, but was down upon the ground. "'Oh!' she cried despairingly. "'What have I done? What have I done?' "'If you mean, Miss Havisham, what have you done to injure me? Let me answer. Very little. I should have loved her under any circumstances. Is she married?' "'Yes.' It was a needless question, for a new desolation in the desolate house had told me so. "'What have I done? What have I done?' She wrung her hands, and crushed her white hair, and returned to this cry over and over again. "'What have I 
done. I knew not how to answer, or how to comfort her. That she had done a grievous thing, in taking an impressionable child, to mould into the form that her wild resentment, spurred in affection, and wounded pride, found vengeance in, I knew full well. But that, in shutting out the light of day, she had shut out infinitely more. That, in seclusion, she had secluded herself from a thousand natural and healing influences. That, her mind, brooding solitary, had grown diseased, as all minds do, and must, and will, that reverse the appointed order of their Maker, I knew equally well. And could I look upon her without compassion, seeing her punishment in the ruin she was, in her profound unfitness for this earth on which she was placed, in the vanity of sorrow which had become a master mania, like the vanity of penitence, the vanity of remorse, the vanity of unworthiness, and other monstrous vanities that have been curses in this world? Until you spoke to her the other day, and until I saw in you a looking-glass that showed me what I once felt myself, I did not know what I had done. What have I done? What have I done? And so again, twenty, fifty times over, what had she done? Miss Havisham, I said, when her cry had died away, you may dismiss me from your mind and conscience, but Estella is a different case, and if you can ever undo any scrap of what you have done amiss, in keeping a part of her right nature away from her, it will be better to do that than to bemoan the past through a hundred years. Yes, yes, I know it. But Pip, my dear, there was an earnest womanly compassion for me in her new affection. My dear, believe this. When she first came to me, I meant to save her from misery like my own. At first, I meant no more. Well, well, said I, I hope so. But as she grew, and promised to be very beautiful, I gradually did worse, and with my praises, and with my jewels, and with my teachings, and with this figure of myself always before her, a warning to back and point my lessons, I stole her heart away, and put ice in its place. Better, I could not help saying, to have left her a natural heart, even to be bruised or broken. With that, Miss Havisham looked distractedly at me for a while, and then burst out again. What had she done? "'If you knew all my story,' she pleaded, "'you would have some compassion for me, and a better understanding of me.' "'Miss Havisham,' I answered as delicately as I could, "'I believe I may say that I do know your story, and have known it ever since I first left this neighbourhood. It has inspired me with great commiseration, and I hope I understand it and its influences. Does what has passed between us give me any excuse for asking you a question relative to Estella? Not as she is, but as she was when she first came here?' She was seated on the ground, 
with her arms on the ragged chair, and her head leaning on them. She looked full at me when I said this, and replied, "'Go on!' "'Whose child was Estella?' She shook her head. "'You don't know?' She shook her head again. "'But Mr. Jaggers brought her here, or sent her here?' "'Brought her here?' "'Will you tell me how that came about?' She answered, in a low whisper, and with caution, "'I had been shut up in these rooms a long time. I don't know how long. You know what time the clocks keep here. When I told him that I wanted a little girl to rear and love and save from my fate, I had first seen him when I sent for him to lay this place waste for me. Having read of him in the newspapers, before I and the world parted, he told me that he would look about him for such an orphan child. One night he brought her here asleep, and I called her Estella. Might I ask her age, then? Two or three. She herself knows nothing, but that she was left an orphan, and I adopted her. So convinced I was of that woman's being her mother, that I wanted no evidence to establish the fact in my own mind, but to any mind, I thought, the connection here was clear and straight. What more could I hope to do by prolonging the interview? I had succeeded on behalf of Herbert. Miss Havisham had told me all she knew of Estella. I had said and done what I could to ease her mind, no matter with what other words we parted. We parted. Twilight was closing in when I went downstairs into the natural air. I called to the woman who had opened the gate when I entered, that I would not trouble her just yet, but would walk round the place before leaving. For I had a presentiment that I should never be there again, and I felt that the dying light was suited to my last view of it. By the wilderness of casks that I had walked on long ago, and on which the rain of years had fallen since, rotting them in many places, and leaving miniature swamps and pools of water upon those that stood on end, I made my way to the ruined garden. I went all round it, round by the corner where Herbert and I had fought our battle, round by the paths where Estella and I had walked, so cold, so lonely, so dreary all. Taking the brewery on my way back, I raised the rusty latch of a little door at the garden end of it, and walked through. I was going out at the opposite door, not easy to open now, for the damp wood had started and swelled, and the hinges were yielding, and the threshold was encumbered with a growth of fungus, when I turned my head to look back. A childish association revived with wonderful force in the moment of the slight action, and I fancied that I saw Miss Havisham hanging to the beam. So strong was the impression, that I stood under the beam, shuddering from head to foot, before I knew it was a fancy, though to be sure I was there in an instant. The mournfulness of the place and time, and the great terror of this illusion, though it was but momentary, caused me to feel an indescribable awe as I came out between the open wooden gates, where I had once wrung my hair, after Estella had wrung my heart. Passing on into the front courtyard, I hesitated whether to call the woman to let me out at the locked gate, of which she had the key, or first 
to go upstairs, and assure myself that Miss Havisham was as safe and well as I had left her. I took the latter course, and went up. I looked into the room where I had left her, and I saw her seated in the ragged chair upon the hearth close to the fire, with her back towards me. In the moment, when I was withdrawing my head to go quietly away, I saw a great flaming light spring up. In the same moment, I saw her running at me, shrieking, with a whirl of fire blazing all about her, and soaring at least as many feet above her head as she was high. I had a double-caped great coat on, and over my arm another thick coat. Then I got them off, closed with her, threw her down, and got them over her. That I dragged the great cloth from the table for the same purpose, and with it dragged down the heap of rottenness in the midst, and all the ugly things that sheltered there. That we were on the ground struggling like desperate enemies, and that the closer I covered her, the more wildly she shrieked and tried to free herself. That this occurred, I knew through the result, but not through anything I felt, or thought, or knew I did. I knew nothing, until I knew that we were on the floor, by the great table, and that patches of tinder yet alight were floating in the smoky air, which a moment ago had been her faded bridal dress. Then I looked round, and saw the disturbed beetles and spiders running away over the floor, and the servants coming in with breathless cries at the door. I still held her forcibly down with all my strength, like a prisoner who might escape, and I doubt if I even knew who she was, or why we had struggled, or that she had been in flames, or that the flames were out, until I saw the patches of tinder that had been her garments, no longer a light, but falling in a black shower around us. She was insensible, and I was afraid to have her moved or even touched. Assistance was sent for, and I held her until it came, as if I unreasonably fancied—I think I did—that if I let her go, the fire would break out again and consume her. When I got up, on the surgeon's coming to her with other aid, I was astonished to see that both my hands were burnt, for I had no knowledge of it through the sense of feeling. On examination, it was pronounced that she had received serious hurts, but that they of themselves were far from hopeless. The danger lay mainly in the nervous shock. By the surgeon's directions, her bed was carried into that room, and laid upon the great table, which happened to be well suited to the dressing of her injuries. When I saw her again, an hour afterwards, she lay indeed where I had seen her strike her stick, and had heard her say, that she would lie one day. Though every vestige of her dress was burnt, as they told me, she still had something of her old ghastly bridal appearance, for they had covered her to the throat with white cotton wool, and as she lay with the white sheet loosely overlying that, the phantom air of something that had been and was changed was still upon her. I found, on questioning the servants, that Estella was in Paris and I got a promise from the surgeon that he would write to her by the next post. Miss Havisham's family I took upon myself, intending to communicate with Mr. Matthew Pocket only, and leave him to do as he liked about informing the rest. This I did next day, through Herbert, as soon as I returned to town. There was a stage, that evening, when she spoke collectedly of what had happened, though with a certain terrible vivacity. Towards midnight, she began to wander in her speech, and after that it gradually set in 
had she said innumerable times, in a low, solemn voice, "'What have I done?' And then, "'When she first came, I meant to save her from misery, like mine.' And then, "'Take the pencil, and write under my name. I forgive her.' She never changed the order of these three sentences, but she sometimes left out a word in one or other of them, never putting in another word, but always leaving a blank, and going on to the next word. As I could do no service there, and as I had, nearer home, that pressing reason for anxiety and fear which even her wanderings could not drive out of my mind, I decided in the course of the night that I would return by the early morning coach walking on a mile or so, and being taken up clear of the town. At about six o'clock of the morning, therefore, I leaned over her, and touched her lips with mine, just as they said, not stopping for being touched. "'Take the pencil, and write under my name. I forgive her.' End of chapter 49Chapter Fifty of Great Expectations. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter Fifty. My hands had been dressed twice or thrice in the night, and again in the morning. My left arm was a good deal burned to the elbow, and less severely, as high as the shoulder. It was very painful but the flames had set in that direction, and I felt thankful it was no worse. My right hand was not so badly burnt, but that I could move the fingers. It was bandaged, of course, but much less inconveniently than my left hand and arm. Those I carried in a sling, and I could only wear my coat like a cloak, loose over my shoulders and fastened at the neck. My hair had been caught by the fire, but not my head or face. When Herbert had been down to Hammersmith, and seen his father, he came back to me at our chambers, and devoted the day to attending on me. He was the kindest of nurses, and at stated times took off the bandages, and steeped them in the cooling liquid that was kept ready, and put them on again, with a patient tenderness that I was deeply grateful for. At first, as I lay quiet on the sofa, I found it painfully difficult, I might say impossible, to get rid of the impression of the glare of the flames, their hurry and noise, and the fierce burning smell. If I dozed for a minute, I was awakened by Miss Havisham's cries, and by her running at me with all that height of fire above her head. This pain of the mind was much harder to strive against than any bodily pain I suffered, and Herbert, seeing that, did his utmost to hold my attention engaged. Neither of us spoke of the boat but we both thought of it. That was made apparent by our avoidance of the subject, and by our agreeing, without agreement, to make my recovery of the use of my hands a question of so many hours, not of so many weeks. My first question when I saw Herbert had been, of course, whether all was well down the river. As he replied in the affirmative, with perfect confidence and cheerfulness, 
we did not resume the subject until the day was wearing away. But then, as Herbert changed the bandages, more by the light of the fire than by the outer light, he went back to it spontaneously. "'I sat with Provis last night, Handel. Two good hours. Where was Clara?' "'Dear little thing,' said Herbert. She was up and down with Gruff and Grim all the evening. He was perpetually pegging at the floor the moment she left his sight. I doubt if he can hold out long, though. What with rum and pepper, and pepper and rum, I should think his pegging must be nearly over. And then you will be married, Herbert. How can I take care of the dear child otherwise? Lay your arm out upon the back of the sofa, my dear boy, and I'll sit down here, and get the bandage off so gradually that you shall not know when it comes. I was speaking of Provis. Do you know Handel? He improves. I said to you I thought he was softened when I last saw him. So you did, and so he is. He was very communicative last night, and told me more of his life. You remember his breaking off here about some woman that he had had great trouble with? Oh, did I hurt you? I had started, but not under his touch. His words had given me a start. I had forgotten that, Herbert, but I remember it now you speak of it. Well, he went into that part of his life, and a darker wild part it is. Shall I tell you? Or would it worry you just now? Tell me, by all means, every word." Herbert bent forward to look at me more nearly, as if my reply had been rather more hurried or more eager than he could quite account for. "'Your head is cool,' he said, touching it. "'Quite,' said I. "'Tell me what Provost said, my dear Herbert.' "'It seems,' said Herbert, "'there's, there's a bandage off most charmingly, and now comes the cool one. Makes you shrink at first, my poor dear fellow, don't it? But it will be comfortable presently. It seems that the woman was a young woman, and a jealous woman, and a revengeful woman, revengeful handle, to the last degree. To what last degree? Murder. Does it strike too cold in that sensitive place? I don't feel it. How did she murder? Whom did she murder? Why, the deed may not have merited quite so terrible a name, said Herbert. But she was tried for it, and Mr. Jaggers defended her, and the reputation of that defence first made his name known to Provis. It was another and a stronger woman who was the victim, and there had been a struggle in a barn. Who began it, or how fair it was, or how unfair, may be doubtful, but how it ended is certainly not doubtful, for the victim was found throttled. Was the woman brought in guilty? No, she was acquitted. By poor Handel, I hurt you. It is impossible to be gentler, Herbert. Yes, what else? This acquitted young woman and Provis had a little child, a little child of whom Provis was exceedingly fond. On the evening of the very night, when the object of her jealousy was strangled, as I tell you, the young woman presented herself before Provis, for one moment, and swore that she would destroy the child, which was in her possession, and he should never see it again. Then she vanished. There's the worst arm comfortably in the sling once more, and now there remains but the right hand, which is a far easier job. I can do it better by this light than by a stronger, for my hand is steadiest when I don't see the poor blistered patches too distinctly. You don't think your breathing is affected, my dear boy? You seem to breathe quickly. Perhaps I do, Herbert. Did the woman keep her oath? Here comes the darkest part of Provis's life. She did. That is, he says she did. Why? 
"'Of course, my dear boy,' returned Herbert, in a tone of surprise, and again bending forward to get a nearer look at me. "'He says it all. I have no other information.' "'No, to be sure. Now whether,' pursued Herbert, "'he had used the child's mother ill, or whether he had used the child's mother well, Provis doesn't say. But she had shared some four or five years of the wretched life he described to us at his fireside, and he seems to have felt pity for her, and forbearance towards her. Therefore, fearing he should be called upon to depose about this destroyed child, and so be the cause of her death, he hid himself, much as he grieved for the child, kept himself dark, as he says, out of the way and out of the trial, and was only vaguely talked of as a certain man called Abel, out of whom the jealousy arose. After the acquittal she disappeared, and thus he lost the child and the child's mother. "'I want to ask—a moment, my dear boy, and I have done—that evil genius, Compayson, the worst of scoundrels among many scoundrels, knowing of his keeping out of the way at that time, and of his reasons for doing so, of course afterwards held the knowledge over his head as a means of keeping him poorer, and working him harder. It was clear last night that this barbed the point of Provis's animosity.' "'I want to know,' said I, "'and particularly, Herbert, whether he told you when this happened?' "'Particularly? Let me remember, then, uh, what he said as to that. His expression was, "'A round score a year ago, and a almost directly after I took up we compassion. How old were you when you came upon him in the churchyard?' "'I think in my seventh year.' "'Aye!' It had happened some three or four years, then, he said, and you brought into his mind the little girl so tragically lost, who would have been about your age. "'Herbert,' said I, after a short silence and a hurried way, "'can you see me best by the light of the window, or the light of the fire?' "'By the firelight,' answered Herbert, coming close again. "'Look at me.' "'I do look at you, my dear boy.' "'Touch me.' I do touch you, my dear boy. You are not afraid that I am in any fever, or that my head is much disordered by the accident of last night. No, my dear boy, said Herbert, after taking time to examine me. You are rather excited, but you are quite yourself. I know I am quite myself. And the man we have in hiding down the river is Estella's father. End of chapter 50。Chapter 51 of Great Expectations。This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson. Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. Chapter 51. What purpose I had in view when I was hot on tracing out and proving Estella's parentage, I cannot say. It will presently be seen that the question was not before me in a distinct shape, until it was put before me by a wiser head than my own. But when Herbert and I had held our momentous conversation, I was seized with a feverish conviction that I ought to hunt the matter down, that I ought not to let it rest, but that I ought to see Mr. Jaggers and come at the bare truth. I really do not know whether I felt that I did this for Estella's sake, 
or whether I was glad to transfer to the man in whose preservation I was so much concerned, some rays of the romantic interest that had so long surrounded her. Perhaps the latter possibility may be the nearer to the truth. Anyway, I could scarcely be withheld from going out to Gerard Street that night. Herbert's representations, that if I did, I should probably be laid up and stricken useless, when our fugitive's safety would depend upon me, alone restrained my impatience. On the understanding, again and again reiterated, that come what would, I was to go to Mr. Jaggers to-morrow. I at length submitted to keep quiet, and to have my hurts looked after, and to stay at home. Early next morning we went out together, and at the corner of Giltspur Street, by Smithfield, I left Herbert to go his way into the city, and took my way to Little Britain. There were periodical occasions, when Mr. Jaggers and Wemmick went over the office accounts, and checked off the vouchers, and put all things straight. On these occasions Wemmick took his books and papers into Mr. Jaggers's room, and one of the upstairs clerks came down into the outer office. Finding such a clerk on Wemmick's post that morning, I knew what was going on. But I was not sorry to have Mr. Jaggers and Wemmick together, as Wemmick would then hear for himself, that I said nothing to compromise him. My appearance with my arm bandaged, and my coat loose over my shoulders, favoured my object. Although I had sent Mr. Jaggers a brief account of the accident, as soon as I had arrived in town, yet I had to give him all the details now, and the specialty of the occasion caused our talk to be less dry and hard, and less strictly regulated by the rules of evidence than it had been before. While I described the disaster, Mr. Jaggers stood, according to his wont, before the fire. Wemmick leaned back in his chair, staring at me, with his hands in the pockets of his trousers, and his pen put horizontally into the post. The two brutal casts, always inseparable in my mind from the official proceedings, seemed to be congestively considering whether they didn't smell fire at the present moment. My narrative finished, and their questions exhausted, I then produced Miss Havisham's authority to receive the nine hundred pounds for Herbert. Mr. Jaggers's eyes retired a little deeper into his head when I handed him the tablets, but he presently handed them over to Wemmick, with instructions to draw the cheque for his signature. While that was in course of being done, I looked on at Wemmick as he wrote, and Mr. Jaggers, poising and swaying himself on his well-polished boots, looked on at me. "'I am sorry, Pip,' said he, as I put the cheque in my pocket, when he had signed it, "'that we do nothing for you.' "'Miss Havisham was good enough to ask me,' I returned, "'whether she could do nothing for me, and I told her no.' "'Everybody should know his own business,' said Mr. Jaggers, and I saw Wemmick's lips form the words, "'Portable Property.' "'I should not have told her no, if I had been you,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'but every man ought to know his own business best.' "'Every man's business,' said Wemmick, rather reproachfully towards me, "'is portable property.' As I thought the time was now come for pursuing the theme I had at heart, I said, turning on Mr. Jaggers, "'I did ask something of Miss Havisham, however, sir. I asked her to give me some information relative to her adopted daughter, and she gave me all she possessed.' 
"'Did she?' said Mr. Jaggers, bending forward to look at his boots, and then straightening himself. "'Ha! I don't think I should have done so, if I had been Miss Havisham. But she ought to know her own business best.' "'I know more of the history of Miss Havisham's adopted child than Miss Havisham herself does, sir. I know her mother.' Mr. Jaggers looked at me inquiringly, and repeated, "'Mother?' "'I have seen her mother within these three days.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Jaggers. "'And so have you, sir. And you have seen her still more recently.' "'Yes,' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Perhaps I know more of Estella's history than even you do,' said I. "'I know her father, too.' A certain stop that Mr. Jaggers came to in his manner. He was too self-possessed to change his manner, but he could not help its being brought to an indefinably attentive stop, assured me that he did not know who her father was. This I had strongly suspected from Provis's account, as Herbert had repeated it, of his having kept himself dark, which I pieced on to the fact that he himself was not Mr. Jaggers's client, until some four years later, and when he could have no reason for claiming his identity. But I could not be sure of this unconsciousness on Mr. Jaggers's part before, though I was quite sure of it now. "'So, you know the young lady's father, Pip?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Yes,' I replied. "'And his name is Provis, from New South Wales.' Even Mr. Jaggers started when I said those words. It was the slightest start that could escape a man the most carefully repressed and the soonest checked, but he did start, though he made it a part of the action of taking out his pocket-handkerchief. How Wemmick received the announcement, I am unable to say, for I was afraid to look at him just then, lest Mr. Jaggers's sharpness should detect that there had been some communication unknown to him between us. "'And on what evidence, Pip?' asked Mr. Jaggers, very coolly, as he paused with his handkerchief halfway to his nose. "'Does Provis make this claim?' "'He does not make it,' said I, "'and has never made it, "'and has no knowledge or belief "'that his daughter is in existence.' "'For once the powerful pocket-handkerchief failed. "'My reply was so unexpected "'that Mr. Jaggers put the handkerchief "'back into his pocket "'without completing the usual performance, "'folded his arms, "'and looked with stern attention at me, though with an immovable face. Then I told him all I knew, and how I knew it, with the one reservation that I left him to infer that I knew from Miss Havisham what I in fact knew from Wemmick. I was very careful indeed as to that. Nor did I look towards Wemmick until I had finished all I had to tell, and had been for some time silently meeting Mr. Jaggers's look. When I did at last turn my eyes in Wemmick's direction, I found that he had unposted his pen, and was intent upon the table before him. "'Ha!' said Mr. Jaggers at last, as he moved towards the papers on the table. "'What item was it you were at, Wemmick, when Mr. Pip came in?' But I could not submit to be thrown off in that way, and I made a passionate, almost an indignant appeal to him to be more frank and manly with me. I reminded him of the false hopes into which I had lapsed the length of time they had lasted, and the discovery I had made, 
and I hinted at the danger that weighed upon my spirits. I represented myself as being surely worthy of some little confidence from him, in return for the confidence I had just now imparted. I said that I did not blame him, or suspect him, or mistrust him, but I wanted assurance of the truth from him. And if he asked me why I wanted it, and why I thought I had any right to it, I would tell him, little as he cared for such poor dreams, that I had loved Estella dearly and long, and that although I had lost her, and must live a bereaved life, whatever concerned her was still nearer and dearer to me than anything else in the world. And seeing that Mr. Jagger stood quite still and silent, and apparently quite obdurate under this appeal, I turned to Wemmick and said, "'Wemmick, I know you to be a man with a gentle heart. I have seen your pleasant home, and your old father, and all the innocent, cheerful, playful ways with which you refresh your business life. And I entreat you to say a word for me to Mr. Jaggers, and to represent to him that, all circumstances considered, he ought to be more open with me. I have never seen two men look more oddly at one another than Mr. Jaggers and Wemmick did, after this apostrophe. At first, a misgiving crossed me, that Wemmick would be instantly dismissed from his employment. But it melted, as I saw Mr. Jaggers relax into something like a smile, and Wemmick become bolder. "'What's all this?' said Mr. Jaggers. "'You with an old father, and you with pleasant and playful ways?' "'Well,' returned Wemmick, "'if I don't bring him here, what does it matter?' "'Pip?' said Mr. Jaggers, laying his hand upon my arm, and smiling openly. "'This man must be the most cunning impostor in all London.' "'Not a bit of it,' returned Wemmick, growing bolder and bolder. "'I think you're another.' Again they exchanged their former odd looks, each apparently still distrustful that the other was taking him in. "'You're with a pleasant home,' said Mr. Jaggers. "'Since it don't interfere with business,' returned Wemmick, "'let it be so. Now, I'll look at you, sir. I shouldn't wonder if you might be planning and contriving to have a pleasant home of your own one of these days, when you're tired of all this work.' Mr. Jaggers nodded his head retrospectively two or three times, and actually drew a sigh. "'Pip,' said he, "'we won't talk about poor dreams.' You know more about such things than I, having much fresher experience of that kind. But now, about this other matter, I'll put a case to you. Mind, I admit nothing." He waited for me to declare that I quite understood that he expressly said that he admitted nothing. "'Now, Pip,' said Mr. Jaggers, "'put this case, put the case that a woman under such circumstances as you have mentioned, held her child concealed, and was obliged to communicate the fact to her legal adviser, on his representing to her that he must know, with an eye to the latitude of his defence, how the fact stood about that child, put the case that at the same time he held a trust to find a child for an eccentric rich lady to adopt and bring up. I follow you, sir. Put the case that he lived in an atmosphere of evil, and that all he saw of children was, 
their being generated in great numbers for certain destruction. Put the case that he often saw children solemnly tried at a criminal bar, where they were held up to be seen. Put the case that he habitually knew of their being imprisoned, whipped, transported, neglected, cast out, qualified in all ways for the hangman, and growing up to be hanged. Put the case that pretty nigh all the children he saw in his daily business life, he had reason to look upon as so much spawn, to develop into the fish that were to come to his net, to be prosecuted, defended, forsworn, made orphans, bedeviled, somehow. I follow you, sir. Put the case, Pip, that here was one pretty little child out of the heap, who could be saved, whom the father believed dead, and dared make no stir about, as to whom, over the mother, the legal adviser had this power. I know what you did, and how you did it. You came so-and-so, this was your manner of attack, and this the manner of resistance. You went so-and-so, you did such and such things to divert suspicion. I have tracked you through it all, and I tell you it all. Part of the child, unless it should be necessary to produce it to clear you, and then it shall be produced. Give the child into my hands, and I will do my best to bring you off. If you are saved, your child is saved too. If you are lost, your child is still saved. Put the case that this was done, and that the woman was cleared. I understand you perfectly. But that I make no admissions? That you make no admissions. And Wemmick repeated, No admissions. Put the case, Pip, that passion and the terror of death had a little shaken the woman's intellect, and that when she was set at liberty, she was scared out of the ways of the world, and went to him to be sheltered. Put the case that he took her in, and that he kept down the old, wild, violent nature, whenever he saw an inkling of its breaking out, by asserting his power over her in the old way. Do you comprehend the imaginary case? Quite. Put the case that the child grew up, and was married for money, that the mother was still living, that the father was still living, that the mother and father, unknown to one another, were dwelling within so many miles, furlongs, yards, if you like, of one another, that the secret was still a secret, except that you had got wind of it. Put that last case to yourself very carefully. I do. I ask Wemmick to put it to himself very carefully. And Wemmick said, I do. For whose sake would you reveal the secret? For the father's? I think he would not be much the better for the mother. For the mother's? I think if she had done such a deed, she would be safer where she was. For the daughter's? I think it would hardly serve her to establish her parentage for the information of her husband, and to drag her back to disgrace, after an escape of twenty years, pity secure to last for life. But add the case that you had loved her, Pip, and had made her the subject of those poor dreams, 
which have, at one time or another, been in the heads of more men than you think likely, and I tell you that you had better, and would much sooner, when you had thought well of it, chop off that bandaged left hand of yours with your bandaged right hand, and then pass the chopper on to Wemmick there, to cut that off too. I looked at Wemmick, whose face was very grave. He gravely touched his lips with his forefinger. I did the same. Mr. Jaggers did the same. "'Now, Wemmick,' said the latter, then resuming his usual manner, "'what item was it you were at when Mr. Pip came in?' Standing by for a little, while they were at work, I observed that the odd looks they had cast at one another were repeated several times, with this difference now, that each of them seemed suspicious, not to say conscious, of having shown himself in a weak and unprofessional light to the other. For this reason, I suppose they were now inflexible with one another, Mr. Jaggers being highly dictatorial, and Wemmick obstinately justifying himself whenever there was the smallest point in abeyance for a moment. I had never seen them on such ill terms, but generally they got on very well indeed together. But they were both happily relieved by the opportune appearance of Mike, the client with the fur cap, and the habit of wiping his nose on his sleeve, whom I had seen on the very first day of my appearance within those walls. This individual, who, either in his own person, or in that of some member of his family, seemed to be always in trouble, which in that place meant Newgate called to announce that his eldest daughter was taken up on suspicion of shoplifting. As he imparted this melancholy circumstance to Wemmick, Mr. Jaggers, standing magisterially before the fire, and taking no share in the proceedings, Mike's eye happened to twinkle with the tear. "'What are you about?' demanded Wemmick, with the utmost indignation. "'What do you come slivelling here for?' "'I didn't go to do it, Mr. Wemmick.' "'You did?' said Wemmick. "'How dare you! You're not in a fit state to come here. If you can't come here without spluttering like a bad pen, what do you mean by it?' "'A man can't help his feelings, Mr. Wemmick,' pleaded Mike. "'His what?' demanded Wemmick, quite savagely. "'Say that again!' "'Now look here, my man,' said Mr. Jaggers, advancing a step, and pointing to the door. "'Get out of this office. I have no feelings here. Get out!' "'He serves you right,' said Wemmick. "'Get out!' So the unfortunate Mike very humbly withdrew, and Mr. Jaggers and Wemmick appear to have re-established their good understanding, and went to work again with an air of refreshment upon them, as if they had just had lunch. End of chapter 51「Chapter 52 of Great Expectations This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Mill Nicholson Great Expectations by Charles Dickens Chapter 52 From Little Britain I went with my cheque in my pocket to Miss Skiffins's brother, the accountant, 
and Miss Giffins's brother, the accountant, going straight to Clarriker's, and bringing Clarriker to me, I had the great satisfaction of concluding that arrangement. It was the only good thing I had done, and the only completed thing I had done, since I was first apprised of my great expectations. Clarriker informing me on that occasion that the affairs of the house were steadily progressing, that he would now be able to establish a small branch-house in the east, which was much wanted for the extension of the business, and that Herbert, in his new partnership capacity, would go out and take charge of it. I found that I must have prepared for a separation from my friend, even though my own affairs had been more settled. And now, indeed, I felt as if my last anchor were loosening its hold, and I should soon be driving with the winds and waves. But there was recompense in the joy with which Herbert would come home of a night, and tell me of these changes, little imagining that he told me no news, and would sketch airy pictures of himself conducting Clara Barley to the land of the Arabian Nights, and of me going out to join them, with a caravan of camels, I believe, and of our all going up the Nile, and seeing wonders. Without being sanguine as to my part in these bright plans, I felt that Herbert's way was clearing fast, and that old Bill Barley had but to stick to his pepper and rum, and his daughter would soon be happily provided for. We had now got into the month of March. My left arm, though it presented no bad symptoms, took in the natural course so long to heal that I was still unable to get a coat on. My right arm was tolerably restored, disfigured, but fairly serviceable. On a Monday morning, when Herbert and I were at breakfast, I received the following letter from Wemmick by the post. Walworth, burn this as soon as read. Early in the week, or say Wednesday, you might do what you know of, if you felt disposed to try it. Now burn. When I had shown this to Herbert, and had put it in the fire, but not before we had both got it by heart, we considered what to do. For, of course, my being disabled could now be no longer kept out of view. "'I have thought it over, again and again,' said Herbert, "'and I think I know a better course than taking a Thames waterman. Take Startop, a good fellow, a skilled hand, fond of us, and enthusiastic and honourable.' I had thought of him more than once. "'But how much would you tell him, Herbert?' "'It is necessary to tell him very little. Let him suppose it a mere freak, but a secret one, until the morning comes. Then let him know that there is urgent reason for your getting Provis aboard and away. You go with him?' "'No doubt.' "'Where?' It had seemed to me, in the many anxious considerations I had given the point, almost indifferent what port we made for—Hamburg, Rotterdam, Antwerp. The place signified little so that he was got out of England. Any foreign steamer that fell in our way, and would take us up, would do. I had always proposed to myself to get him well down the river in the boat, certainly well beyond Gravesend, which was a critical place for search or inquiry if suspicion were afoot. As foreign steamers would leave London at about the time of high water, our plan would be to get down the river by a previous ebb-tide and lie by in some quiet spot, until we could pull off to one. The time when one would be due where we lay, wherever that might be, could be calculated pretty nearly if we made inquiries beforehand. Herbert assented to all this, and we went out immediately after breakfast to pursue our investigations. 
we found that a steamer for Hamburg was likely to suit our purpose best, and we directed our thoughts chiefly to that vessel. But we noted down what other foreign steamers would leave London with the same tide, and we satisfied ourselves that we knew the build and colour of each. We then separated for a few hours, I to get at once such passports as were necessary, Herbert to see Startup at his lodgings. We both did what we had to do without any hindrance, and when we met again at one o'clock reported it done. I, for my part, was prepared with passports. Herbert had seen Startop, and he was more than ready to join. Those two should pull a pair of oars, we settled, and I would steer. Our charge would be sitter, and keep quiet. As speed was not our object, we should make way enough. We arranged that Herbert should not come home to dinner before going to Mill Pond Bank that evening, that he should not go there at all to-morrow evening, Tuesday, that he should prepare Provis to come down to some stairs hard by the house on Wednesday, when he saw us approach, and not sooner, that all the arrangements with him should be concluded that Monday night, and that he should be communicated with no more in any way until we took him on board. These proportions, well understood by both of us, I went home. On opening the outer door of our chambers with my key, I found a letter in the box, directed to me, a very dirty letter, though not ill-written. It had been delivered by hand, of course, since I left home, and its contents were these. If you are not afraid to come to the old marshes to-night, or to-morrow night, at nine, and to come to the little sluice-house by the lime-kiln, you had better come. If you want information regarding your uncle Provis, you had much better come and tell no one, and lose no time. You must come alone. Bring this with you. I had had load enough upon my mind before the receipt of this strange letter. What to do now I could not tell. And the worst was that I must decide quickly, or I should miss the afternoon coach, which would take me down in time for to-night. To-morrow night I could not think of going, for it would be too close upon the time of the flight. And again, for anything I knew, the proffered information might have some important bearing on the flight itself. If I had had ample time for consideration, I believe I should still have gone. Having hardly any time for consideration, my watch showing me that the coach started within half an hour, I resolved to go. I should certainly not have gone, but for the reference to my uncle Provis, that coming on Wemmick's letter and the morning's busy preparation, turned the scale. It is so difficult to become clearly possessed of the contents of almost any letter in a violent hurry, that I had to read this mysterious epistle again, twice, before its injunction to me to be secret got mechanically into my mind. Yielding to it in the same mechanical kind of way, I left a note in pencil for Herbert, telling him that as I should be soon going away, I knew not for how long, I had decided to hurry down and back, to ascertain for myself how Miss Havisham was faring. I had then barely time to get my great-coat, lock up the chambers, and make for the coach-office by the short byways. If I had taken a hackney-chariot, and gone by the streets, I should have missed my aim. Going as I did, I caught the coach just as it came out of the yard. I was the only inside passenger, jolting away knee-deep in straw, when I came to myself. For I really had not been myself since the receipt of the letter. 
it had so bewildered me, ensuing on the hurry of the morning. The morning hurry and flutter had been great, for, long and anxiously as I had waited for Wemmick, his hint had come like a surprise at last. And now I began to wonder at myself for being in the coach, and to doubt whether I had sufficient reason for being there, and to consider whether I should get out presently and go back, and to argue against ever heeding an anonymous communication, and, in short, to pass through all those phases of contradiction and indecision to which I suppose very few hurried people are strangers. Still, the reference to Provis by name mastered everything. I reasoned, as I had reasoned already, without knowing it, if that be reasoning, in case any harm should befall him through my not going, how could I ever forgive myself? It was dark before we got down, and the journey seemed long and dreary to me, who could see little of it inside, and who could not go outside in my disabled state. Avoiding the blue boar, I put up at an inn of minor reputation down the town, and ordered some dinner. While it was preparing, I went to Sartre's house, and inquired for Miss Havisham. She was still very ill, though considered something better. My inn had once been a part of an ancient ecclesiastical house, and I dined in a little octagonal common-room, like a font. As I was not able to cut my dinner, the old landlord with a shining bald head did it for me. This bringing us into conversation, he was so good as to entertain me with my own story, of course with the popular feature that Pumblechook was my earliest benefactor, and the founder of my fortunes. "'Do you know the young man?' said I. "'Know him?' repeated the landlord. "'Ever since he was, no height at all.' "'Does he ever come back to this neighbourhood?' "'Ah, he comes back,' said the landlord, "'to his great friends now and again, "'and gives the cold shoulder to the man that made him.' "'What man is that?' "'Him that I speak of.' said the landlord. Mr. Pumblechook. Is he ungrateful to no one else? No doubt he would be, if he could, returned the landlord. But he can't. And why? Because Pumblechook done everything for him. Does Pumblechook say so? Say so, replied the landlord. He ain't no call to say so. But does he say so? It would turn a man's blood to white wine winegar, to hear him tell of it, sir, said the landlord. I thought, yet, Joe, dear Joe, you never tell of it. Long-suffering and loving Joe, you never complain, nor you, sweet-tempered Biddy. Your appetite's been touched like by your accident, said the landlord glancing at the bandaged arm under my coat. "'Try a tender a bit.' "'No, thank you,' I replied, turning from the table to brood over the fire. "'I can eat no more. Please take it away.' I had never been struck at so keenly for my thanklessness to Joe as to the brazen impostor Pumblechook. The falser he, the truer Joe. The meaner he, the nobler Joe. My heart was deeply and most deservedly humbled, as I mused over the fire for an hour or more. The striking of the clock aroused me, 
but not from my dejection or remorse, and I got up and had my coat fastened round my neck and went out. I had previously sought in my pockets for the letter that I might refer to it again, but I could not find it, and was uneasy to think that it must have been dropped in the straw of the coach. I knew very well, however, that the appointed place was the little sluice-house by the lime-kiln on the marshes, and the hour nine. Towards the marshes I now went straight, having no time to spare. End of chapter 52、Chapter、It was a dark night. Though the full moon rose as I left the enclosed lands, and passed out upon the marshes, beyond their dark line there was a ribbon of clear sky, hardly broad enough to hold the red large moon. In a few minutes she had ascended out of that clear field, in among the piled mountains of cloud. There was a melancholy wind, and the marshes were very dismal. A stranger would have found them insupportable. And even to me they were so oppressive that I hesitated, half inclined to go back. But I knew them well, and could have found my way on a far darker night, and had no excuse for returning, being there. So, having come there against my inclination, I went on against it. The direction that I took was not that in which my old home lay, nor that in which we had pursued the convicts. My back was turned towards the distant hulks as I walked on, and though I could see the old lights away on the spits of sand, I saw them over my shoulder. I knew the lime kiln as well as I knew the old battery, but they were miles apart, so that if a light had been burning at each point that night, there would have been a long strip of the blank horizon between the two bright specks. At first, I had to shut some gates after me. And now and then to stand still, while the cattle that were lying in the banked-up pathway arose and blundered down among the grass and reeds. But after a little while, I seemed to have the whole flats to myself. It was another half hour before I drew near to the kiln. The lime was burning with a sluggish, stifling smell, but the fires were made up and left, and no workmen were visible. Hard by was a small stone quarry. It lay directly in my way, and had been worked that day, as I saw by the tools and barrows that were lying about. Coming up again to the marsh level of this excavation, for the rude path lay through it, I saw a light in the old sluice house. I quickened my pace and knocked the door with my hand. Waiting for some reply, I looked about me, noticing how the sluice was abandoned and broken, and how the house of wood with the tiled roof. Would not be proof against the weather much longer, if it were so even now, and how the mud and ooze were coated with lime, and how the choking vapour of the kiln crept in a ghostly way towards me. Still there was no answer, and I knocked again. No answer still, and I tried the latch. It rose under my hand, and the door yielded. Looking in, I saw a lighted candle on a table, a bench. And a mattress on a truckle bedstead. As there was a loft above, I called, 
"'Is there any one here?' But no voice answered. Then I looked at my watch, and finding that it was past nine, called again. "'Is there any one here?' There being still no answer, I went out at the door, irresolute what to do. It was beginning to rain fast. Seeing nothing save what I had seen already, I turned back into the house, and stood just within the shelter of the doorway, looking out into the night. While I was considering that someone must have been there lately, and must soon be coming back, or the candle would not be burning, it came into my head to look if the wick were long. I turned round to do so, and had taken up the candle in my hand, when it was extinguished by some violent shock, and the next thing I comprehended was that I had been caught in a strong running noose thrown over my head from behind. "'Now,' said a suppressed voice with an oath, "'I've got you.' "'What? What is this?' I cried, struggling. "'Who is it? Help! Help! Help!' Not only were my arms pulled close to my sides, but the pressure on my bad arm caused me exquisite pain. Sometimes a strong man's hand, sometimes a strong man's breast, was set against my mouth to deaden my cries, and with a hot breath, always close to me, I struggled ineffectually in the dark, while I was fastened tight to the wall. "'And now,' said the suppressed voice with another oath, "'call out again, and I'll make short work of you.' faint and sick with the pain of my injured arm, bewildered by the surprise, and yet conscious how easily this threat could be put in execution, I desisted, and tried to ease my arm were it ever so little. But it was bound too tight for that. I felt as if, having been burnt before, it were now being boiled. The sudden exclusion of the night, and the substitution of black darkness in its place, warned me that the man had closed a shutter. After groping about a little, he found the flint and steel he wanted, and began to strike a light. I strained my sight upon the sparks that fell among the tinder, and upon which he breathed and breathed, match in hand, but I could only see his lips, and the blue point of the match, even those but fitfully. The tinder was damp, no wonder there, and one after another the sparks died out. The man was in no hurry, and struck again with the flint and steel. As the sparks fell thick and bright about him, I could see his hands, and touches of his face, and could make out that he was seated, and bending over the table, but nothing more. Presently I saw his blue lips again, breathing on the tinder, and then a flare of light flashed up, and showed me Orlick. Whom I had looked for, I don't know. I had not looked for him. Seeing him, I felt that I was in a dangerous strait indeed, and I kept my eyes upon him. He lighted the candle from the flaring match, with great deliberation, and dropped the match, and trod it out. Then he put the candle away from him on the table, so that he could see me, and sat with his arms folded on the table and looked at me. I made out that I was fastened to a stout perpendicular ladder a few inches from the wall, a fixture there, the means of ascent to the loft above. "'No,' said he, when we had surveyed one another for some time, "'I've got you.' "'Unbind me! Let me go!' "'Ah!' he returned. 
I'll let you go. I'll let you go to the moon. I'll let you go to the stars. All in good time. Why have you lured me here? Don't you know? said he, with a deadly look. Why have you set upon me in the dark? Because I mean to do it all myself. One keeps a secret better than two. Oh, you enemy, you enemy. His enjoyment of the spectacle I furnished, as he sat with his arms folded on the table, shaking his head at me and hugging himself, had a malignity in it that made me tremble. As I watched him in silence, he put his hand into the corner at his side and took up a gun with a brass-bound stock. "'Do you know this?' said he, making as if he would take aim at me. "'Do you know where you saw it afore? Speak, Wolf.' "'Yes,' I answered. "'You cost me that place. You did. Speak.' "'What else could I do?' You did that, and that would be enough without more. How dared you come betwixt me and a young woman I liked? When did I? When didn't you? It was you as always give old Orlick a bad name to her. You gave it to yourself. You gained it for yourself. I could have done you no harm if you had done yourself none. You're a liar and you'll take any pains, and spend any money, to drive me out of this country, will you?' said he, repeating my words to Biddy in the last interview I had with her. "'No, I'll tell you a piece of information. It was never so well worth your while to get me out of this country as it is to-night. Ah, if it was all your money twenty times told to the last brass farden as he shook his heavy hand at me, with his mouth snarling like a tiger's, I felt that it was true. "'What are you going to do to me?' "'I'm a-goin,' said he, bringing his fist down upon the table with a heavy blow, and rising as the blow fell, to give it greater force. "'I'm a-goin to have your life!' He leaned forward, staring at me, slowly unclenched his hand and drew it across his mouth, as if his mouth watered for me, and sat down again. "'You was always an old Orlick's way, since ever you was a child. You goes out of his way this present night. He'll have no more on you. You're dead.' I felt that I had come to the brink of my grave. For a moment I looked wildly round my trap for any chance of escape, but there was none. "'More than that,' said he, folding his arms on the table again. "'I won't have a rag of you. I won't have a bone of you, left on earth. I'll put your body in the kiln. I'd carry two such to it on my shoulders, and let people suppose what they may of you. They shall never know nothing.' My mind, with inconceivable rapidity, followed out all the consequences of such a death. Estella's father would believe I had deserted him, would be taken, would die accusing me. Even Herbert would doubt me, when he compared the letter I had left for him, with the fact that I had called at Miss Havisham's gate for only a moment. 
Joe and Biddy would never know how sorry I had been that night. None would ever know what I had suffered, how true I had meant to be, what an agony I had passed through. The death close before me was terrible, but far more terrible than death was the dread of being misremembered after death, and so quick were my thoughts that I saw myself despised by unborn generations, Estella's children, and their children, while the wretch's words were yet on his lips. "'Now, Wolf,' said he, "'afore I kill you, like any other beast, which is what I mean to do, and what I have tied you up for, I'll have a good look at you, and a good gold at you. Oh, you enemy!' It had passed through my thoughts to cry out for help again, though few could know better than I, the solitary nature of the spot, and the hopelessness of aid. But as he sat gloating over me, I was supported by a scornful detestation of him that sealed my lips. Above all things, I resolved that I would not entreat him, and that I would die making some last poor resistance to him. Softened as my thoughts of all the rest of men were, in that dire extremity, humbly beseeching pardon, as I did, of heaven, melted at heart as I was, by the thought that I had taken no farewell, and never, never now, could take farewell, of those who were dear to me, or could explain myself to them, or ask for their compassion on my miserable errors. Still, if I could have killed him, even in dying, I would have done it. He had been drinking, and his eyes were red and bloodshot. Around his neck was slung a tin bottle, as I had often seen his meat and drink slung about him in other days. He brought the bottle to his lips, and took a fiery drink from it, and I smelt the strong spirits that I saw flash into his face. "'Wolf!' said he, folding his arms again. "'Old Orlix, I'm going to tell you something. It was you as did for your shrew sister.' Again my mind, with its former inconceivable rapidity, had exhausted the whole subject of the attack upon my sister, her illness, and her death, before his slow and hesitating speech had formed these words. "'It was you, villain,' said I. "'I tell you, it was your doing. I tell you, it was done through you,' he retorted, catching up the gun, and making a blow with the stock at the vacant air between us. I come upon her from behind, as I come upon you to-night. I give it her. I left her for dead. And if there had been a lime-kiln as nigh her, as there is now nigh you, she shouldn't have come to life again. But it warn't old Orlick as did it. It was you. You was favoured, and he was bullied and beat. Old Orlick! bullied and beat, eh? Now you pays for it. You done it. Now you pays for it." He drank again, and became more ferocious. I saw by his tilting of the bottle that there was no great quantity left in it. I distinctly understood that he was working himself up with its contents to make an end of me. I knew that every drop it held was a drop of my life. I knew that when I was changed into a part of the vapour that had crept towards me but a little while before, like my own warning ghost, he would do as he had done in my sister's case, 
make all haste to the town, and be seen slouching about there, drinking at the alehouses. My rapid mind pursued him to the town, made a picture of the street with him in it, and contrasted its lights and life with the lonely marsh and the white vapour creeping over it, into which I should have dissolved. It was not only that I could have summed up years and years and years while he said a dozen words, but that what he did say presented pictures to me, and not mere words. In the excited and exalted state of my brain, I could not think of a place without seeing it, or of persons without seeing them. It is impossible to overstate the vividness of these images, and yet I was so intent all the time upon him himself, who would not be intent on the tiger crouching to spring, that I knew of the slightest action of his fingers. When he had drunk this second time, he rose from the bench on which he sat, and pushed the table aside. Then he took up the candle, and shading it with his murderous hand, so as to throw its light on me, stood before me, looking at me, and enjoying the sight. Wolf, I'll tell you something more. It was old Orlick as you tumbled over on your stairs that night. I saw the staircase with its extinguished lamps, I saw the shadows of the heavy stair-rails thrown by the watchman's lantern on the wall, I saw the rooms that I was never to see again, here a door half open, there a door closed, all the articles of furniture around. And why was old Orlick there? I'll tell you something more, Wolf. You and her have pretty well hunted me out of this country so far as getting a easy living in it goes, and I took up with new companions, and new masters. Some of them writes my letters when I want some wrote, dear mind, writes my letters, Wolf. They writes fifty hands. They're not like sneaking you as writes but one. I've had a firm mind, and a firm will, to have your life since you was down here at your sister's burying. I ha'n't seen a way to get you safe, and I've looked after you to know your ins and outs. For, says old Orlick to himself, somehow or another, I'll have him. What? When I looks for you, I find your Uncle Provis, eh? Mill Pond Bank, and Chinks's Basin, and the old green copper rope-walk, also clear and plain. Provis in his rooms, the signal whose use was over. Pretty Clara, the good motherly woman, old Bill Barley on his back, all drifting by, as on the swift stream of my life, fast running out to sea. You with that uncle, too! Why, I knowed you at Gargery's when you was so small a wolf, that I could have took your weasen betwixt this finger and thumb, and chucked you away dead, as I'd thought o' doing odd times, when I see you loitering amongst the pollards on a Sunday. And you hadn't found no uncles then. No, not you. But when old Orlick come for to hear, that your uncle Provis had most like wore the leg-iron what old Orlick had picked up, filed asunder on these meshes ever so many years ago, and what he kept by him till he dropped your sister with it, like a bullock, as it means to drop you. Hey! When he come for to hear that! Hey! In his savage taunting, 
he flared the candle so close at me that I turned my face aside to save it from the flame. Ha-ha! he cried, laughing after doing it again. The burnt child dreads the fire. Old Orlick knowed you was burned. Old Orlick knowed you was smuggling your Uncle Provis away. Old Orlick's a match for you, and knowed you'd come to-night. Now I'll tell you something more, Wolf, and this ends it. There's them that's as good a match for your Uncle Provis as old Orlick has been for you. Let him wear them when he's lost his nevy. Let him wear them when no man can't find a rag of his dear relation's clothes, nor yet a bone of his body. There's them that can't, and that won't, have Magwitch. Yes, I know the name. Alive in the same land with them, and that's had such sure information of him when he was alive in another land, as that he couldn't and shouldn't leave it unbeknown and put them in danger. Perhaps it's them that writes fifty hands, and that's not like sneaking you as writes but one. Where, Compayson, Magwitch, and the gallows? He flared the candle at me again smoking my face and hair, and for an instant blinding me, and turned his powerful back as he replaced the light on the table. I had thought a prayer, and had been with Joe and Biddy and Herbert, before he turned towards me again. There was a clear space of a few feet between the table and the opposite wall. Within this space he now slouched backwards and forwards. His great strength seemed to sit stronger upon him than ever before as he did this with his hands hanging loose and heavy at his sides, and with his eyes scowling at me. I had no grain of hope left. Wild as my inward hurry was, and wonderful the force of the pictures that rushed by me instead of thoughts, I could yet clearly understand that unless he had resolved that I was within a few moments of surely perishing out of all human knowledge, he would never have told me what he had told. Of a sudden he stopped took the cork out of his bottle, and tossed it away. Light as it was, I heard it fall like a plummet. He swallowed slowly, tilting up the bottle by little and little, and now he looked at me no more. The last few drops of liquor he poured into the palm of his hand, and licked up. Then, with a sudden hurry of violence and swearing horribly, he threw the bottle from him, and stooped, and I saw in his hand a stone hammer with a long, heavy handle. The resolution I had made did not desert me, for, without uttering one vain word of appeal to him, I shouted out with all my might, and struggled with all my might. It was only my head and my legs that I could move, but to that extent I struggled with all the force, until then unknown, that was within me. In the same instant I heard responsive shouts, saw figures, and a gleam of light dash in at the door heard voices in tumult, and saw Orlick emerge from a struggle of men, as if it were tumbling water, clear the table at a leap, and fly out into the night. After a blank, I found that I was lying unbound, on the floor, in the same place, with my head on someone's knee. My eyes were fixed on the ladder against the wall, when I came to myself, had opened on it before my mind saw it, and thus, as I recovered consciousness, I knew that I was in the place where I had lost it. 
too indifferent at first, even to look round and ascertain who supported me, I was lying looking at the ladder, when there came between me and it a face—the face of Trab's boy. "'I think he's all right,' said Trab's boy, in a sober voice. "'But ain't he just pale, though?' At these words, the face of him who supported me looked over into mine, and I saw my supporter to be— "'Herbert! Great heaven!' "'Softly,' said Herbert. "'Gently, Handel. Don't be too eager.' "'And our old comrade start up,' I cried, as he do bent over me. "'Remember what he is going to assist us in,' said Herbert, "'and be calm.' The illusion made me spring up, though I dropped again from the pain in my arm. "'The time has not gone by, Herbert, has it? What night is it to-night? How long have I been here?' For I had a strange and strong misgiving that I had been lying there a long time, a day and a night. Two days and nights more. The time has not gone by. It is still Monday night. Thank God. And you have all to-morrow, Tuesday, to rest in, said Herbert. But you can't help groaning, my dear Handel. What hurt have you got? Can you stand? Yes, yes, said I. I can walk. I have no hurt but in this throbbing arm. They laid it bare and did what they could. It was violently swollen and inflamed, and I could scarcely endure to have it touched. But they tore up their handkerchiefs, to make fresh bandages, and carefully replaced it in the sling, until we could get to the town, and obtain some cooling lotion to put upon it. In a little while we had shut the door of the dark and empty sluice-house, and were passing through the quarry on our way back. Trab's boy—Trab's overgrown young man, now— went before us with a lantern, which was the light I had seen come in at the door. But the moon was a good two hours higher than when I had last seen the sky, and the night, though rainy, was much lighter. The white vapour of the kiln was passing from us as we went by, and, as I had thought a prayer before, I thought a thanksgiving now. Entreating Herbert to tell me how he had come to my rescue, which at first he had flatly refused to do, but had insisted on my remaining quiet, I learnt that I had, in my hurry, dropped the letter open in our chambers, where he, coming home to bring with him Startup, whom he had met in the street on his way to me, found it very soon after I was gone. Its tone made him uneasy, and the more so because of the inconsistency between it and the hasty letter I had left for him. His uneasiness increasing, instead of subsiding, after a quarter of an hour's consideration, he set off for the coach-office with Startup, who volunteered his company, to make inquiry when the next coach went down. Finding that the afternoon coach was gone, and finding that his uneasiness grew into positive alarm as obstacles came in his way, he resolved to follow in a post-chase. So he and Startup arrived at the Blue Boar, fully expecting there to find me, or tidings of me, but— finding neither, went on to Miss Havisham's, where they lost me. Hereupon they went back to the hotel, doubtless at about the time when I was hearing the popular local version of my own story, to refresh themselves, and to get someone to guide them out upon the marshes. Among the loungers, under the boar's archway, happened to be Trab's boy, 
true to his ancient habit of happening to be everywhere where he had no business, and Trabb's boy had seen me passing from Miss Havisham's in the direction of my dining-place. Thus Trabb's boy became their guide, and with him they went out to the sluice-house, though by the town-way to the marshes which I had avoided. Now, as they went along, Herbert reflected that I might, after all, have been brought there on some genuine and serviceable errand, tending to Provis's safety, and, bethinking himself that in that case interruption must be mischievous, left his guide and start-up on the edge of the quarry, and went on by himself, and stole round the house two or three times, endeavouring to ascertain whether all was right within. As he could hear nothing, but indistinct sounds of one deep, rough voice, this was while my mind was so busy, he even at last began to doubt whether I was there, when suddenly I cried out loudly, and he answered the cries, and rushed in, closely followed by the other two. When I told Herbert what had passed within the house, he was for our immediately going before a magistrate in the town, late at night as it was, and getting out a warrant. But I had already considered that such a course, by detaining us there, or binding us to come back, might be fatal to Provis. There was no gain saying this difficulty, and we relinquished all thoughts of pursuing Orlick at that time. For the present, under the circumstances, we deemed it prudent to make rather light of the matter to Trabb's boy, who, I am convinced, would have been much affected by disappointment, if he had known that his intervention saved me from the lime-kiln. Not that Trabb's boy was of a malignant nature, but that he had too much spare vivacity, and it was in his constitution to want variety and excitement at anybody's expense. When we parted, I presented him with two guineas, which seemed to meet his views, and told him that I was very sorry ever to have had an ill opinion of him, which made no impression on him at all. Wednesday being so close upon us, we determined to go back to London that night, three in the post-chaise, the rather, as we should then be clear away before the night's adventure began to be talked of. Herbert got a large bottle of stuff for my arm, and by dint of having this stuff dropped over it all the night through, I was just able to bear its pain on the journey. It was daylight when we reached the temple, and I went at once to bed, and lay in bed all day. My terror! as I lay there, of falling ill, and being unfitted for to-morrow, was so besetting, that I wonder it did not disable me of itself. It would have done so, pretty surely, in conjunction with the mental wear and tear I had suffered, but for the unnatural strain upon me that to-morrow was. So anxiously looked forward to, charged with such consequences, its result so impenetrably hidden, though so near. No precaution could have been more obvious than our refraining from communication with him that day. Yet this again increased my restlessness. I started at every footstep and every sound, believing that he was discovered and taken, and this was the messenger to tell me so. I persuaded myself that I knew he was taken, that there was something more upon my mind than a fear or a presentiment, that the fact had occurred, and I had a mysterious knowledge of it. As the day wore on, and no ill news came, as the day closed in and darkness fell, my overshadowing dread of being disabled by illness before to-morrow morning altogether mastered me. My burning arm throbbed, and my burning head throbbed, and I fancied I was beginning to wander. I counted up to high numbers, to make sure of myself, 
and repeated passages that I knew in prose and verse. It happened sometimes that in the mere escape of a fatigued mind I dozed for some moments or forgot. Then I would say to myself with a start, "'Now it has come. I am turning delirious.' They kept me very quiet all day, and kept my arm constantly dressed, and gave me cooling drinks. Whenever I fell asleep, I awoke with the notion I had had in the sluice-house, that a long time had elapsed, and the opportunity to save him was gone. About midnight I got out of bed, and went to Herbert, with the conviction that I had been asleep for four-and-twenty hours, and that Wednesday was past. It was the last self-exhausting effort of my fretfulness, for after that I slept soundly. Wednesday morning was dawning, when I looked out of window. The winking lights upon the bridges were already pale. The coming sun was like a marsh of fire on the horizon. The river, still dark and mysterious, was spanned by bridges that were turning coldly grey, with here and there at top a warm touch from the burning in the sky. As I looked along the clustered roofs, with church towers and spires shooting into the unusually clear air, the sun rose up, and a veil seemed to be drawn from the river, and millions of sparkles burst out upon its waters. From me, too, a veil seemed to be drawn, and I felt strong and well. Herbert lay asleep in his bed, and our old fellow-student lay asleep on the sofa. I could not dress myself without help, but I made up the fire, which was still burning, and got some coffee ready for them. In good time they too started up strong and well, and we admitted the sharp morning air at the windows, and looked at the tide that was still flowing towards us. "'When it turns at nine o'clock,' said Herbert cheerfully, "'look out for us, and stand ready, you over there at Mill Pond Bank.'" End of chapter 53「Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.